Good evening and welcome to this edition of the Legacy of Queens for Sunday, February 4th, 2024. I'm your host, Jason DeCanio, and tonight it's episode number 98. And we're two episodes away from our 100th anniversary edition. Well, not so much an anniversary edition, but our overall 100th episode. And we're really looking forward to it. We really haven't decided what we're going to be doing on that 100th episode Maybe you'll look back over the past four years and maybe what's going on with the YouTube channel. Maybe just talk about some of the things, some of the faces that will be coming up in the next months and seasons. But right now, episode 98, tonight we are attributing an American singer, actor, comedian, and dancer. At the age of three, this gentleman began his career in vaudeville with his father of the same name, Senior, and will the and the Will Maston trio, which toured nationally, and his film career began in 1933. After military service, he returned to the trio, and became an overnight sensation, following a nightclub performance at Ciro's in West Hollywood, after the 1951 Academy Awards. With the trio, he became a recording artist. In 1954, at the age of 29, he lost his left eye in a car accident. Several years later, he converted to Judaism finding commonalities between the impression experienced by African-American and Jewish communities. He had a starring role on Broadway in Mr. Wonderful with Cheetah Rivera in 1956, and then in 60 he appeared in the Rat Pack film Ocean's Eleven. He returned to the stage in 64 in a musical adaptation of Clifford Odette's Golden Boy, nominated for a Tony Award for his performance, and the show featured the first interracial kiss on Broadway. Then in 66, he had his own TV variety show, titled after him, and while his career slowed in the late 60s, his biggest hit, The Candyman, reached the top of the Billboard Hot 100 in in June of 1972, and he became a star in Las Vegas, earning him the nickname Mr. Show Business. His popularity helped break the race barrier of the segregated entertainment industry. He did, however, have a complex relationship with the black community, and drew criticism after publicly supporting President Richard Nixon in 1972. One day in a golf course with Jack Benny, he was asked what his handicap was. Handicap, he asked? Talk about handicap. I'm a one-eyed Negro who's Jewish. This was to become a signature comment recounted in his autobiography and in many articles. After reuniting with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin in 1987, he toured with them and Liza Minnelli internationally before his death in 1990. He died in debt to the Internal Revenue Service, and his estate was the subject of legal battles after the death of his wife. He was awarded the Spingarn Medal by the NAACP and was nominated for a Golden Globe Award and an Emmy for his television performances. He was a recipient of the Kennedy Center Honors in 87. In 2001, he was posthumously awarded the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, and in 2017, he was inducted into the National Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame. Who are we tributing tonight? The man who, at the age of 64, passed so soon, but he lives and breathes New York City so much. Tonight, we're looking at Mr. Show Business, Sammy Davis Jr. That's right. He is our tribute of episode 98, tonight on The Legacy of Queens.
It's it's Sunday evening, and it's time for episode 98 of The Legacy of Queens. And I'm your host, Jason DiCanio, ready to go on this February 4, 2024, with the tribute to Sammy Davis Jr. He was born on December 8, 1925, in the Harlem section of Manhattan in New York City, the son of African-American entertainer and stage performer Sammy Davis Sr., and Cuban-American top dancer and stage performer Elvera Sanchez. During his lifetime, Davis stated that his mother was Puerto Rican and born in San Juan. However, in the 2000 biography, 2003 biography in Black and White, author Will Haygood wrote that Davis's mother was born in New York City to Cuban parents who were of Afro-Cuban background, and that Davis claimed he was Puerto Rican because he feared anti-Cuban backlash would hurt his record sales. Davis's parents were vaudeville dancers. As an infant, he was reared by his paternal grandmother, and when he was three years old, his parents separated. His father, not wanting to lose custody of his son, took him on tour. Davis learned to dance from his father and godfather, Will Maston. He joined the act as a child and then became the Will Maston, and they became the Will Maston Trio. Throughout his career, Davis included the Will Maston Trio in his billing. Maston and his father shielded him from racism for example, by dismissing race-based snubs as jealousy. However, when Davis served in the United States Army during World War II, he was confronted by strong prejudice. He later said, Overnight, the world looked different. It wasn't one color anymore. I could see the protection I'd gotten all my life from my father and Will. I appreciated their loving hope that I'd never need to know about prejudice and hate, but they were wrong. It was as if I walked through a swinging door for 18 years, a door which they had always secretly held open. Well, at age seven, Davis played the title role in the film Rufus Jones for President, in which he sang and danced with Ethel Waters. He lived for several years in Boston's South End and reminisced years later about hoofing and singing at Izzy's Orts Bar and Grill. In 1944, during World War II, Davis was drafted into the U.S. Army at age 18. He was frequently abused by white soldiers from the South and later recounted, I must have knocked, had had a knockdown, dragged out fight every two days. His nose was broken numerous times and permanently flattened. At one point, he was offered a beer laced with urine. He was reassigned to the Army Special Services Branch, which put on performances for troops. At one show, he found himself performing in front of soldiers who had previously racially abused him. Davis, who earned the American Campaign Medal and World War II Victory Medal, was discharged in 1945 with the rank of private. He later said, My talent was the weapon, the power, the way for me to fight. It was the one way I might hope to affect a man's thinking. After his discharge, Davis rejoined the Family Dance Act, which played at clubs around Portland, Oregon. He also recorded blues songs for Capitol Records in 1949 under the pseudonyms Shorty Muggins and Charlie Green. March 23, 1951, the Will Maston Trio appeared at Ciro's as the opening act for headliner Janice Page. They would have performed for only 20 minutes, but the reaction from the celebrity-filled crowd was so enthusiastic, especially when Davis launched into his, in his, into his impressions, that they performed for nearly an hour, and Page insisted the order of the show be flipped. Davis began to achieve success on his own and was singled out for praise by critics, releasing several albums. In 1953, Davis was offered his own television show on ABC, Three for the Road with the Will Maston Trio. The network spent $20,000 filming the pilot, which presented African Americans as struggling musicians, not slapstick comedy or the stereotypical mammy roles of the time. 
The cast included Frances Davis, who was the first black ballerina to perform for the Paris Opera, and actresses Ruth Attaway and Jane White, and Frederick O'Neill, who founded the, ne- the American Negro Theater. The network could not get a sponsor, so the show was dropped. In 1954, Davis was hired to sing the title song for the Universal Pictures film Six Bridges to Cross. In 1956, he starred in the Broadway musical Mr. Wonderful, which was panned by critics, but was a commercial success, closing after 383 performances. In 1958, Davis was hired to crown the winner of the Miss Cavalcade of Jazz Beauty Contest for the famed 14th Cavalcade of Jazz Concert, produced by Leon Heffin Sr., held at the Shrine Auditorium on August 3rd, and the other headliners were Little Willie John, Sam Cooke, Ernie Freeman, and Bo Rahambo. The event featured the top four prominent disc jockeys of Los Angeles. In 1959, he became a member of the Rad Pack, led by his friend Frank Sinatra, which included fellow performers Dean Martin, Joey Bishop, and Peter Lawford, a brother-in-law of John F. Kennedy. Initially, Sinatra called the gathering the Klan, but Davis voiced his, his opposition, saying that it reminded people of the Ku Klux Klan. Sinatra renamed the group the Summit. One long night of poker that went on into the early morning saw the men drunken and disheveled. As Angie Dickinson approached the group, she said, Y'all look like a pack of rats. Well, the nickname caught on, and they were then called the Rat Pack. The name of the earlier group, led by Humphrey Bogart and his wife, Lauren Bacall, who originally made the remark about the pack of rats they associated with. The group around Sinatra made several movies together, including Ocean's Eleven, Sergeant's Three, and Robin and the Seven Hoods, and they performed on stage together in Las Vegas. In 64, Davis was the first African-American to sing at the Copacabana Nights Club in New York. Davis was a headliner at the Frontier Casino in Las Vegas, but owing to Jim Crow practices in Las Vegas, he was required, as were all black performers in the 1950s, to lodge in a rooming house on the west side of the city instead of in the hotels, as his white colleagues did. No dressing rooms were provided for black performers, and they had to wait outside by the swimming pool between acts. Davis and other black artists could entertain, but could not stay at the hotels where they performed, gamble in the casinos, or dine or drink in the hotel restaurants and bars. Davis later refused to work at places that practiced racial segregation. Canada provided opportunities for performers like Davis, unable to break the color barrier in the U.S., broadcast television, and in 1959, he starred in his own TV special, Sammy's Parade, on the Canadian network CBC. It was a breakthrough event for the performer, as in the United States in the 1950s, corporate sponsors largely controlled the screen. Black people were not portrayed very well on television, if at all, according to Jason King of the the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music. In 1964, Davis was starring in Golden Boy at night and shooting his own New York-based afternoon talk show during the day. When he could get a day off from the theater, he recorded songs in the studio, performed at charity events in Chicago, Miami, or Las Vegas, or appeared on television variety specials in Los Angeles. Davis felt he was cheating his family of his company, but he said he was incapable of standing still. Although he was still popular in Las Vegas, he saw his musical career decline by the late 60s. He had a number 11 hit, number one on the Easy Listening singles chart with I've Gotta Be Me in 69, and he signed with Motown to update his sound and appeal to young people. His deal to have his own label with the company fell through. He had an unexpected number one hit with The Candyman with MGM Records in 1972, and he did not particularly care for the song and was chagrined 
that he had uh, chagrined, that he had become known for it, but Davis made the most of his opportunity and revitalized his career. Although he enjoyed no more top 40 hits, he did enjoy popularity with his 1976 performance of the theme song from the Beretta television series, Beretta's theme, Keep Your Eye on the Sparrow, from 75 to 78, which was released as a single from 20th Century Records. He appeared on numerous television shows since the 50s, like The Rifleman, where he showcased his gunspinning skills. In ABC's 1960s hit medical drama Ben Casey, Davis addressed the loss of an eye. When Westerns waned in popularity, he accepted parts in Emmy-winning sitcoms like the 1960s I Dream of Jeannie, or in politically charged satires, including the 1973 episode of All in the Family, in which Davis famously kisses Archie Bunker, Carol O'Connor, on the cheek, which was Davis's own idea. He ironically played the comic effect both himself and a Sammy Davis impersonator in the 70s P.I. drama Charlie's Angels, along with his wife, Alta Vies Davis. December 11, 1967, NBC broadcast a musical variety special featuring Nancy Sinatra, the daughter of Frank Sinatra, titled Movin' with Nancy. In addition to the Emmy Award-winning musical performances, the show was notable for Nancy Sinatra and Davis greeting each other with a kiss, one of the first black-and-white kisses in U.S. television. Davis had a friendship with Elvis Presley in the late 60s, as they both were top-drawer acts in Las Vegas at the same time. Davis was in many ways just as reclusive during his hotel gigs as Elvis was, holding parties mainly in his penthouse suite that Elvis occasionally attended. Davis sang a version of Presley's song, In the Ghetto, and made a cameo appearance in Presley's 1970 concert film, Elvis, That's the Way It Is. One year later, he made a cameo appearance in the James Bond film, Diamonds Are Forever, but the scene was cut. And in Japan, Davis appeared in television commercials for coffee and Suntory Whiskey, United States, he joined Sinatra and Martin in a radio commercial for a Chicago car dealership. May 27 to the 28, 1973, Davis hosted with Monty Hall the first annual 20-hour Highway Safety Foundation Telethon. Guests included Muhammad Ali, Paul Anka, Jack Barry, Joyce Brothers, Ray Charles, Dick Clark, Roy Clark, Howard Cosell, Ossie Davis, Ruby D, Joe Franklin, Cliff Gorman, Richie Havens, Danny Kaye, Jerry Lewis, Hal Lydon, Rich Little, Butterfly McQueen, Minnie Pearl, Boots Randolph, Tex Ritter, Phil Rizzuto, The Rockettes, Nipsey Russell, Sally Struthers, Mel Tillis, Ben Vereen, and Lawrence Welk. It was a financial disaster. The total amount of pledges was $1.2 million, but the actual pledges received were $525,000. Davis was a huge fan of daytime television, particularly the soap operas produced by the American Broadcasting Company. He made a cameo appearance on General Hospital and had a recurring role, role as Chip Warren on One Life to Live, for which he received a 1980 Daytime Emmy Award nomination. He was also a game show fan, appearing on Family Feud in 79, and tattletales with his wife, Altavis, in the 1970s. One note, he also made a cameo appearance on Card Sharks in 1981 with Jim Perry. After his bout with cirrhosis due to years of drinking, Davis announced his sponsorship of the Sammy Davis Jr. National Liver Institute in Newark, New Jersey in 1985. And then in 1988, Davis was billed to tour with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. But Sinatra and Martin had a falling out. Liza Minnelli replaced Martin on the tour, dubbed as the ultimate event. And during the tour in 1989, Davis was diagnosed with throat cancer. His treatments prevented him from performing. 
Davis nearly died in an automobile accident on November 19th of 1954 in San Bernardino, California, as he was making a return trip from Las Vegas to Los Angeles. During the previous year, he had started a friendship with comedian and host Eddie Cantor, who had given him a mezzazua. Instead of putting it by his door as a traditional blessing, Davis wore it around his neck for good luck. The only time he forgot it was the night of the accident. The accident occurred at a fork in U.S. Route 66 at Cajun Boulevard and Kendall Drive when a driver who missed missing a turn at the fork backed up her car in Davis's lane and he drove into her car. Now, Davis consequently lost his left eye to the bullet-shaped horn button, a standard feature in 1954 and 55 Cadillacs. His friend, actor Jeff Chandler, said he would give one of his own eyes to keep Davis from total blindness. He wore an eye patch for at least six months following the accident. The singer was featured with the patch on the cover of his debut album and appeared on What's My Line wearing the patch. Later, Davis was fitted for a glass eye, which he wore for the rest of his life. In the hospital, Eddie Cantor described to Sammy the similarities between Jewish and black cultures. Davis, born to a Catholic mother, mother and Baptist father, was raised Catholic and began studying Jewish history as an adult, converting to Judaism several years later in 61. One passage from his readings from the book A History of the Jews by Abram L. Sakar, describing the endurance of Jewish people, interested him in particular. The Jews would not die. Three millennia of prophetic teaching had given them an unwavering spirit of resignation and had created in them a will to live which no disaster could crush. The accident marked a turning point in Davis's career, taking him from a well-known entertainer to a national celebrity. 1957, Davis was involved with actress Kim Novak, who was under contract with Columbia Pictures. Because Novak was white, Harry Cohn, the president of Columbia, gave in to his worries that backlash against the relationship could hurt the studio. There are several accounts of what happened, but they agree that Davis was threatened by organized crime figures close to Cohn. According to one account, Cohn called racketeer John Roselli, who was told to inform Davis that he must stop seeing Novak. To try to scare Davis, Roselli had him kidnapped for a few hours. Another account relates that the threat was conveyed to Davis's father by mobster Mickey Cohen. Davis was threatened with the loss of his other eye or a broken leg if he did not marry a black woman within two days. Davis sought the protection of Chicago mobster Sam uh, Ginacana, who said that he could protect him in Chicago and Las Vegas, but not California. Davis briefly married black dancer Loray White in 1958 to protect himself from mob violence. Davis had previously dated White, who was 23 and twice divorced and had a six-year-old child. He paid her a lump sum of $10,000 or $25,000 to engage in a marriage on the condition that it would be dissolved before the end of the year. Davis became inebriated at the wedding and attempted to strangle White en route to their wedding suite. Checking on him later, Davis's personal assistant, Arthur Silber Jr., found Davis with a gun to his head. Davis despairingly said to Silber, Why won't they let me live my life? The couple never lived together and commenced divorce proceedings in September of 58. The divorce was granted in April of 1959. And then in 59, he had a short, stormy, exciting relationship with Nichelle Nichols. In 1960, there was another racially charged public controversy when Davis married White. Swedish-born actor Mae Britt, in a ceremony officiated by Rabbi William M. Kramer at Temple Israel of Hollywood. While interracial marriage had been legal in California since 1948... Anti-missenegation laws in the U.S. still stood in 23 states 
And a 1958 opinion poll revealed only 4% of Americans supported marriage between black and white spouses. During the 64 to 66, Davis received racist hate mail while starring in the Broadway adaptation of Golden Boy, in which his character is in a relationship with a white woman, paralleling his own interracial relationship. At the time, Davis appeared in the musical, and although New York had no laws against it, debut debate about interracial marriage was still ongoing in America as Loving versus Virginia was being fought. It was only until... 19, it was only in 1967, after the musical finished, that anti-missenegation laws in all states were ruled unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. May Britt's and Davis's daughter, Tracy Davis, revealed in a 2014 book that the marriage to Britt also resulted in President Kennedy refusing, Kennedy refusing to allow Davis to perform at his inauguration. The snub was confirmed by director Sam Pollard, who revealed in a 2017 American Masters documentary that Davis's invitation to perform at the inauguration was abruptly canceled on the night of JFK's inaugural party. In addition to Tracy, Davis, and Britt, they adopted two sons, Mark and Jeff, and Davis performed almost continuously and spent little time with his wife. They divorced in 68 after Davis admitted to an affair with singer Lola Falana. After his marriage imploded, Davis turned to alcohol and found solace in drugs, particularly cocaine and amyl nitrate, and experimented briefly with Satanism and pornography. In 1968, Davis started dating Alta V's Gore, a dancer in Golden Boy. They were married on May 11, 1970, by Reverend Jesse Jackson, and adopted a son, Manny, in 1989. Davis and Gore remained married until his death in 1990, and by the end, Altavise was sharing her mansion with Sammy's white girlfriend. Davis was an avid photographer who enjoyed shooting pictures of family and acquaintances. His body of work was detailed in a 2007 book by Bert Boyard titled Photo by Sammy Davis Jr. Jerry Lewis gave me my first important camera, my first 35mm during the Ciro's period, Early 50s, Boyer quotes Davis as saying, and he hooked me. Davis used a medium format camera later on to capture images. Boyer reports that Davis had said, Nobody interrupts a man taking a picture to ask, What's that nigger doing here? <laughs> his catalog includes rare photos of his father dancing on stage as part of the Will Maston trio, and intimate snapshots of, snapshots of close friends Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, James Dean, Nat King Cole, and Marilyn Monroe. His political affiliations also were represented in his images of Robert Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy, and Martin Luther King Jr. His most revealing work comes in photographs of wife Mae Britt and their three children, Tracy, Jeff, and Mark. Davis was an enthusiastic shooter and gun owner, and he participated in fast-draw competitions. Johnny Cash recalled that Davis was said to be capable of drawing and firing a Colt single-action army revolver in less than a quarter of a second. Davis was skilled at fast and fancy gun spinning and appeared on television variety shows showing off of this skill. He also demonstrated gun spinning to Mark on The Rifleman and Two Ounces of Tin. He appeared in Western films and as a guest star on several television westerns. Davis was a registered Democrat and supported John F. Kennedy's 1960 election campaign as well as Robert F. Kennedy's 68 campaign. He went on to become a close friend of President Richard Nixon, a Republican, and publicly endorsed him at the 72 Republican National Convention. Davis also made a USO tour to South Vietnam at Nixon's request. February of 72, 
During the later stages of the Vietnam War, Davis went to Vietnam to observe military drug abuse rehabilitation programs and talk to and entertain the troops. He did this as a representative from President Nixon's Special Action Office for Drug Abuse Prevention. He performed shows for up to 15,000 troops. After one two-hour performance, he reportedly said, I've never been so tired and felt so good in my life. Well, the U.S. Army made a documentary about Davis's time in Vietnam, performing for troops on behalf of Nixon's drug treatment program. Nixon invited Davis and his wife out to V's to sleep in the White House in 73, the first time African Americans were invited to do so. The Davises spent the night within the Lincoln bedroom. Davis later said he regretted supporting Nixon, accusing him of making promises on civil rights that he did not keep. Davis was a longtime donor to the Reverend Jesse, Jesse Jackson's Operation Push organization and later supported Jackson's 1984 campaign for president. In August of 1989, Davis began to develop symptoms of cancer, a tickle in his throat and an inability to taste food. Doctors found a malignant tumor in Davis's throat. He was a heavy smoker and had often smoked up to four packs of cigarettes a day as, a, as an adult. When told that surgery offered him the best chance of survival, Davis replied he would rather keep his voice than have a part of his throat removed. He was treated with definitive radiation therapy. His larynx was later removed when his cancer recurred, and he was released from the hospital on March 13, 1990. He died of complications from throat cancer two months later at his home in Beverly Hills, California, on May 16, 1990, at age 64. He was buried at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California, on May 18th of 1992, two days after his death, the neon lights of the Las Vegas Strip were darkened for 10 minutes as a tribute. He left the bulk of his estate, estimated at $4 million, to his widow, Altaviz Davis, but he owed the IRS $5,200,000, which, after interest and penalties, had increased to over $7 million. Altaviz became liable for his debt because she had co-signed his tax returns. She was forced to auction his personal possessions and real estate. Some of his friends in the industry, including Quincy Jones, Joey Bishop, Ed Asner, Jane Meadows, and Steve Allen, participating in a fundraising concert at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas. Alta Vis and the IRS reached a settlement in 1997. After she died in 2009, their son Manny was named an executor of the estate and majority rights holder of his intellectual property. And there you have it, friends, a legacy that will go on forever, and we will miss him dearly. Died too young at the age of 64, but that's what will happen. And when you're ready to go, you go and can't come back. But what a legacy for Sammy Samuel George Davis Jr. We thank you for your wonderful service in the entertainment industry, and we miss you very much. Next week on the program, we'll be looking at the... Sports journalist, broadcast, and author who became prominent and influential during his tenure with ABC Sports from 1953 until 1985. Widely known for his blustery, confident personality, he said of himself, I've been called arrogant, pompous, obnoxious, vain, cruel, verbose, and a show-off, and of course I am. He was sardonically nicknamed Humble Howard by fans and media critics. In its obituary for him, the New York Times described his effect on American sports coverage. He entered sports broadcasting in the mid-50s when the predominant style was unabashed adulation and offered a brassy counterpoint that was first ridiculed, then copied until it became the dominant note of sports broadcasting.
He also brought an artistic and almost heel-like commentary, notably giving his criticism of Terry Bradshaw by suggesting that he did not have the intelligence to win in the league. In 1993, TV Guide named this guy the all-time best sportscaster. We're talking about Howard William Cosell. He died in 1995 at the age of 77, born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, but he was raised in Brooklyn, New York City, and died in New York City. And that makes him a legend of Queens. And the five boroughs, for that matter, too. (laughs) We'll look at his fantastic life next week on episode 99 of The Legacy of Queens. I'm Jason Nicanio, thanking you very much for another fantastic show. It's been a great time, and we hope that you enjoyed it as much as uh, we enjoy presenting it to you. If you have not yet subscribed to the YouTube page, please do so. Lots of great uh, back episodes from the first three seasons. We're still putting up some. We need to put up some new ones to kind of get caught up, so that way you'll see them. Season four, soon to be coming to the end in June We'll pick up with Season 5 in September. From all of us here, I'm Jason Icanio from the WJDC Studios in beautiful Vito, Florida. Have a great night. Remember, be honest, be real, and keep it simple, stupid. Yes. Good night.